Amen? All right. You ready to go? Okay. <laughs> I like it. So, okay, just to start off with, there's this week, um, I, I don't remember what show I was watching or what late night show. It was just a clip that popped up my phone on YouTube or something. But it was a late night show, and then there was a guest and a host, and the guest was relating this story to the host. And he said, you know, last week, he said, I, I met a fan who thought I was dead. And so he tells this story to the host. He said, this fan came up to me, and she said, I thought you died. And he said, no. Why did you think that? And he said, she said, well, well, my daughter this week, she told me yesterday, she said that you passed away. And the guest said, well, obviously no, but I am curious, how did I die? Like, what was the, how did, what was the cause of death? How did I pass? And she said, oh, I don't know. I didn't ask. And the guest said, what? What? You just heard I died. And your next instinct was to ask if you want tacos or Chinese food? Like the level of impact, it was so insignificant to say, yeah, this person died, and not even have the follow-up question of how was just like mind-boggling to them. And I think I can relate to that. I mean, I'm, I, I would like to know that I'd make at least enough impact on somebody that if they heard that I died, they'd say how, instead of do you want to go and get tacos or whatever. But when I heard that, it made me just think of this thing is that you know, tragedy or loss as a statistic rarely affects a person. A tragedy or loss without a face or a buy-in to that person's life rarely affects us. And that's why we can hear about an earthquake wiping out a whole city and then it flops to a really cute kitten picture and just go, oh, that's okay, and live untroubled and unaffected by that because just a big statistical number doesn't give me buy-in to somebody's life. A big statistical number on tragedy or hurt or pain doesn't really help me connect to somebody. It's just a number. It's just something I can say at a dinner party. Of, oh, did you hear this going on? Yeah, a lot of stuff. Did you see that cat? That was a funny cat. You know what I mean? Are you guys connecting with this? You understand what I'm saying with this? Is that tragedy requires a face. Or it requires some kind of buy-in on our part to feel a part of it. And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking today. We're actually wrapping up our fasting series today. I think this is our fourth talk or something on the practice of fasting. And hopefully this has been a good experience for you. And hopefully it's going beyond just a seasonal thing that we do at the beginning of the year. But we've been doing it a couple weeks in a row, not to just start the year off right, but to try to do this together to build a practice into our life. So John, uh, Johnson Freikholm says this. He says, fasting's about three things. Attentiveness, compassion, and freedom. Today we're going to conclude this series on fasting with this idea of growing in compassion. And why is this necessary, though? Because I think that naturally at our base level, our flesh is just selfish. Naturally, at the base level, the, the reset model, the, the foundation, how we come out, how we come into the world is just that we're selfish people. That's how we're born. That's the flesh. You know, I think of the people in the Bibles as often relationships that are based on selfishness. I think first and foremost of Cain and Abel, brothers. And Cain is incredibly selfish or mad that God would accept his brother's sacrifice and not his sacrifice. And God says, just, just fix your sacrifice. Come with a pure heart. And instead, he murders his brother. 
And then as his brother's laying there, God comes and speaks to him and says, where's your brother? And he says, what does he say? Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my problem where my brother's at? He should have had a worse ass sacrifice. You should have paid more attention to me. And I think of the person that came to Jesus, the Pharisee, and the story of the Samaritan. Why was that told? Because there was a person trying to justify their actions of love. Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to care about? Where is the line? Where, religiously, how far do I have to go before my caring stops? How far does it have to extend? Like, is it just people I live with, my family? Like, how far does that go? And Jesus goes into the story of who's, the, who's, who's neighbor? Who showed love? Who extended it in the Good Samaritan? And I even think of Jesus at the cross. After years of walking with people as close as you possibly could, literally walking and doing ministry and eating and sharing the road and stories, and of all this time at Jesus's when everything felt like it was going sideways, at his moment, all of a sudden the persecution wasn't just on Jesus, it could be on them. And so when I think about that, it just makes sense to me is that we're naturally, without the spirit, selfish. One of my favorite quotes of all time is by Mel Brooks. He says this, tragedy is when I stub my toe. Comedy is when you fall into a sewer and die. That's Mel Brooks. Because what? Me, I got hurt. Ow, my toe. But you fell. That's funny. There's this idea if it happens to us, if I run through this filter, everything runs through the filter of how does this or this situation affect me? If we're personally involved, we automatically care. If it actually immediately affects us, then we start to care. But outside of that, it begins to become a practice to start caring about the people around us. You know, I was thinking about this too just recently. We just got over all the holidays and everything. And we've been working through this thing with my son where um, he's, getting to the, he's three years old and he'll make a rad, bad decision and there's a consequence or um, something doesn't go his way. And there's a very, very quick line from, no, you can't have ice cream for dinner. You have to eat the broccoli or something like that, to, it's a bad day. Everything is bad. And we're like, no, you just can't have ice cream for dinner, son. Like, you can have it afterward. No, it's a bad day. And we've been trying to work through with him is that you might be having a bad moment, but just because one thing that affected you doesn't make it a whole bad day. But I tell that to my son, and then I think back to a Christmas party that me and my wife were just at, and the kids had a great time. My wife was having a great time, but we have a one-year-old, and so we usually switch off on duties of who's watching at a party, because there's not, like, she's at 18 months, so she's right at that walking, like, that's electrical socket, let me lick it and put it, let me put this in my mouth, what is this, rat poison, does this, is this, she's, like, into all those things, okay, all the things that can kill her, she's just trying to look for those things, and so we kind of take turns and stuff, and so in my mind, that party that my family just had a great time at. My wife had a wonderful time just laughing around the table. My kids just running for hours and stuff. In my mind, I look at that party, and I got into a really, uh, it wasn't heated, but just an uncomfortable political conversation that I did not want to be on and I could not back out of. And I think about all the kids that I was downstairs running after my daughter, just like, okay, don't, don't put that in your mouth. And I think about my other kid that threw up on me at the end of the party. And I was like, that was the worst party I've ever been to. We're never going to see that side of the family again. I don't care. And everything goes through the filter of how does it affect me? 
literally my whole family had the time of their life. But it's a bad day. It's a bad, you got threw up on, okay? It makes everybody's day not very good. I think back to Adam. As soon as he disobeyed God, as soon as sin entered his life, what was his initial response? Shame and passing blame. He felt shamed at his body, and he said, it's my wife's fault. Adam, why are you naked? She gave me the apple. As soon as it, selfishness is there immediately, as soon as sin enters the picture. As soon as man falls, selfishness is there, the primary mode, the primary function, the, how he came out of the factory. He says, it's the wife you gave me. Adam, just a few weeks ago, you were literally the only person on earth. And it's almost Valentine's Day, guys. I imagine in my mind, it was like Valentine's Day when God sent the woman. And he, Adam's looking at the antelope running off into the fields. And he's seeing how the rabbits have pairs. And he's just, I don't have anybody. And God gave him one woman. There was no, there was no other fish in the pond. One woman. And can you imagine the response? Go back. If you're looking for a love story, go back and look at the response that Adam gives when he sees Eve for the first time. It's beautiful. But how quickly does it turn us to this woman you gave me? She's broken. And selfishness is so easy to be our default setting. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bob Goff, but just incredibly hilarious man that loves Jesus from what I can tell just this guy was a, a lawyer he has just crazy stories of how we got into law school was sitting outside the dean's office every day because he failed the bar exam he said you could change my life if you let me into school and he did that for a week and then the guy just let him in even though he failed that's his story of how he got into college okay so anybody that's flunking college maybe just need to go post up outside the dean's office and they'll let you in eventually but this guy just loves Jesus, and he's just radically, he's always doing crazy things that are either big or small, just to show he loves Jesus. And he has these set of rules of how he engages with people. And one of them that's really hard for me to swallow, one of the ways that when he has conflict with somebody, he tries to think, I try to imagine that they love Jesus more than I do. I wonder, as I was thinking on this message and reflecting, how much of our life would change if we had that mentality that person that just cut me off on the road, I bet they love Jesus more than I do. Doesn't that just change your response to, hey, and to, yeah, go ahead, man, I, sorry. I was in the way. Doesn't that just immediately change your response to those relationships in your families? I bet that they love Jesus more than I do. Or that ordinary neighbor, I bet they love Jesus more than I do. Because the lens shifts from how does it affect me to how are other people doing? And so this all kind of culminates in this idea. We're going to turn to Philippians chapter 2 and starting in verse 1. So if you have a Bible today, you can go ahead and flip to that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. And the idea that we're getting behind today is that we're trying to shift our thinking. We're trying to shift our mindset from a self-mindset to the attitude of Jesus Christ. I'm reading out of the NLT today. And if you look at your Bible, oftentimes... And this wasn't in the original text, but people who translate it try to group and try to paraphrase so you understand what's happening. You'll see the top of a, of a section of scripture that they'll put something there to give you an idea or an outline of what's about to happen. And so at the top of my Bible, chapter 2, it says, have the attitude of Christ. 
And we're going to read this all the way through. Chapter, uh, or chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. It says this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Verse 6, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. There's a couple of interesting things here that I just pull from this context of what is the attitude of Christ? What is the attitude of Christ? And his attitude was one of comfort and love. It makes me so happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better, better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. And I think it's so interesting to see that when you think about Jesus, who was God, highest position available. And it said he humbled himself. He took on the position of a slave. And the context for here is not slave. How we think about it right now is um, as forced labor, but it, almost an, it was a contractual, almost indentured servanthood in the context of that Jesus is talking about. And so he chose willingly to come be a servant to us. The Son of Man came and gave up his deity, his power, his authority, his place in heaven to take the lowest place in Scripture. Just a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, we talked about how Jesus came. And we went over the foot washing Scripture, how he took the lowest form. And he put the needs of other people before him. And it wasn't obligation. It wasn't because Jesus, God bullied him into doing it. It wasn't because he felt guilty or he wouldn't be a good Christian if he didn't do it. He felt compassion for us. He felt a deep, overwhelming desire to reunite us with God. And so out of love, he humbled himself, took the lowest position available, and sacrificed to restore relationship back to God. And Philippians 2, 1 through 8 is saying, have the same attitude. Have the same attitude. And I don't know where it plays out for you, but where it immediately plays out for me in my life is 8 o'clock bedtime. 8 o'clock rolls around, 5, 3, and 1, they all get into bed and they take turns. It's a strategic effort of, hey, you slept in yesterday, so it's your turn to stay up awake and give mom and dad a bunch of crap. Go, go get them, tiger. And so every day, it's like one of them just rotates who's going to come downstairs or who's going to need a cup of water or who's going to fall out of bed or whatever it is. And they just do all these things. And you know what happens in my heart? This is my time. I get an hour and 29 minutes to myself every day. Let me watch Boba Fett. That's what comes to my mind. I want to eat ice cream without you knowing. Go away. 
Yeah, I didn't eat the broccoli either, but you have to. And so what I remembered, or I have to continue to tell myself, is that choosing to become a husband, choosing to become a father, means sacrificing my right to my time. And so when I remember, when I go through this and remember this, and I have to tell myself at night, this is not your time, this is your son or your daughter's time. And it's a, it's a sacrifice worth sacrificing for. Mandalorian's way better anyways. Boba Fett's a huge disappointment. So just don't even worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk later, Marty. I, we're going to get you to confess that. And so as soon as it starts impeding on my time or my life, we're confronted with this idea of will I step outside the boundary of my rights? Will I step outside of myself into the attitude of Jesus. Verse 12 and 13, Philippians, 12, uh, Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, he says this, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. Now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. There should be a noticeable difference there should be a very noticeable change when you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. People should be able to look at us and say, there's something different about you than X amount of weeks ago or X amount of uh, months ago or X amount of years ago. I don't know about you, but I know for myself that there was a marked difference in my life when I started living for Jesus full out, wholeheartedly. Up until my first year of college, it was a lot of lip service. It was a lot of doing the religious duty I had to do on a Sunday, and then going partying with my friends the rest of the week. There was a lot of two-facedness, things I would never, ever say in a Sunday morning church. But I would say just as a joke to just get a laugh through the rest of the week. There was marked difference, though. My first year that I went away, there was a marked difference in my life when I started full-heartedly giving myself to God because there's this dying to self because you're saying, I can't do it on my own. God, please kill this in me and rebirth something new in me. It says that we're reborn and we're what? Mind, soul, and body. And so is our body rejuvenated? Is our mind changed? No, what changes is that heart. That heart in us is rejuvenated and changed and come reborn again. And so God comes and puts the spirit in you and something changes in you. It's the heart. And so people should be able to look at us and we should be killing pride and killing selfishness and going beyond ourselves with compassion, with love, with valuing other people's time in front of ourselves, putting other people's interests above our own. Philippians 2, the attitude of Christ that we're supposed to start embodying and living out. Jesus taught that we were supposed to join him as when we joined him, it was as joining a new family. We talked about this, I think, last year in our community series about how Jesus elevated the family relationship. The, the family relationship was the strongest, not the marriage relationship. The brother, the sister, the uh, father and mother, the immediate family relationship was the powerful or Trump relationship follower of him. You entered the family of God. Your brother and sister outside. Who's my, who's my brother and sister? You who, call, you who follow me. You who follow God. 
And so as we come into the family of God, as a Christian, there's a marked difference is that we stop caring just about our own tribe, but the tribe of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 26-27 says, If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Dallas Willard's definition for community is when a person takes responsibility for another person. When I start caring about you, when I start caring about my brother or sister who's having a hard time financially, emotionally, relationally, or across the globe, it's, pretty, it's easy to see, look around the room and say, okay, these are the people I need help. Where it gets a little bit harder is realizing that the body of Christ is not centralized on one building. It's not just Church on the Rock. It's a global, capital C church around the whole world. And not everybody has the privilege of gathering on a Sunday to worship God. And what was so impressed on my heart this week is realizing how easy it is for me to take for granted to worship with a bunch of people to gather unhindered to come before God. How easy it is for me to hear about persecution going on across the globe and to not feel a thing except God help them. Can you turn to your neighbor and just say this really quick? I thought we were talking about fasting. Would you turn to your other neighbor and say, hold on, I think he's about to go there. So we're talking about fasting this week. And so far, and we've talked about the me aspect in fasting. How it requires you to get in alignment with God. And we've talked about the basics. And we've talked about what you can receive from fasting. When you focus on that, experiencing a moment that requires a response of fasting, what the benefits of fasting can be. We've talked about how it, it can break addiction and how it has power over the flesh and we can discern God's will and we can petition God for our desires and we can see, receive physical healing and restoration and growing intimacy and relationship with God. And it's so easy as you start fasting, maybe, not for you, maybe it's not your story, but maybe for, just for me, but so easy to say, am I fasting this week or is it going well or when can I eat or am I doing it right or when's God going to move? Or, and it's just so me-focused. And so this week I wanted to emphasize the idea is that fasting is not just a solitary practice between you and God, but actually a practice, a spiritual discipline that is beneficial for others. A way to minister and to, uh, and to be a benefit to other people around you. It can often feel very isolating with little correlation to the world around us, but the opposite is actually true. Fasting is a way of standing in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Fasting is a way to connect to somebody else that fasts not of their choosing. Fasting is a way to connect with somebody. Fasting is literally starving the body. Leviticus calls it afflicting, afflict yourselves with fasting. When we have brothers and sisters around the globe that are afflicted, or persecuted. Fasting is a way to buy into them, to put a face to tragedy, to name pain, and to not just be a statistic that we live on by. I want to just kind of give you a picture for solidarity. Um, I was at a, I was a youth pastor for I think five or five years, six years here, something like that. Um, and I remember one youth camp specifically. 
remember one youth camp specifically, and they usually build momentum throughout the week. You have time there, and you, you're, you're connecting with people, and you're starting to break outside of your camp and your cabin, and you're starting to get to know other people. And so about the middle of the week is when the hard-hitting stuff comes, when they're really starting to pound the kids and try, because there's the most openness there. You've got past all the, the pride and stuff. You can really start getting them to come to the altar and to, to get past themselves to hear God. I remember this uh, one guy that was really starting to hit on to the struggles that teenagers deal with today. And so what he did is he put a line up right about where these front chairs are. He put a line across the whole sanctuary and had the whole auditorium stand up. And it's about 1,200 people, I think, that would go to that camp that week. And so about 1,200 kids, students, and staff would all be there lined up across the row. And he would start listing things, pornography, addiction, drunk, smoking, foul language, gossip, bad relationships, sexual, and he would, list this, he would list something. And then any student that dealt with that would stand up and cross the line. Now all the students that didn't deal with it, though, wouldn't just sit there and look at them, they would just raise their fists like this. And what it was showing is that I don't personally deal with that issue, but I'm standing in solidarity with you. I'm here for you. If you need to call me, I'm here. Call me. If you need a friend to talk to, I'm here. I'm with you. And so when the kid came up and they saw left and right, all these other kids dealing with the same issue they're dealing with, and they look behind them and they see a whole church that's standing in solidarity with them, it did something to our kids. When we came out of that week, I, I don't remember the statistics, but we had a lot of kids that dealt with a lot of significant life-changing, life-threatening issues that came from feeling support of their church around them. And so when I hear the word of standing in solidarity, that's what I think of. I think of 1,200 kids in a room with their fists up, hearing other kids there suffering and saying, I'm with you, I'm with you. So how does that relate to us? How do we start growing that into our lives? I want you to turn to our second passage that we're going to go to today. It's Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, and we're going to read a big chunk here, so stay with me. We're going to read verse 1 through 10. Isaiah 58, he says this. Isaiah is dealing with this people. Isaiah is this beautiful book of the whole gospel message. He deals with the, the uh, unrepentant Israel, and he talks about how there's going to be an exile. And then there's this shift in the, towards the end of uh, Isaiah where it shifts from the unrepentant sinner to the obedient servant. But there's a shift in mindset there in chapters 56 through 58 that Isaiah deals with. He's saying, this is how you used to live. This is now what you must change to live as an obedient servant of God. And Isaiah 58 is that's the context we're walking into. He's saying, this is what it used to be. This is how, this is what, this is the living that got you to the point of exile right now. This is the change that we're going into. So Isaiah 58, verse 1, he says, Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yes, they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves. You don't even notice it. I will tell you why I respond. It's because you are fasting to please yourself. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere 
with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap, cover yourselves with ashes. Is that what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give to shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. Do not hide from your relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn. Your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward, and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer, Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Verse 10, feed the hungry. Help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. And so we come to this idea, and we started, the very first scripture that we started with, with fasting, was Matthew 6. And Jesus has this idea of you don't need to fast to get fame or to show people how religiously pious you are or how amazing of a Christian you are. Comb your hair. Don't let people know about it because Jesus is dealing with the heart. And the primary reason that we fast is to deal with our heart. The primary thing that matters when we go into fasting is controlling our wayward hearts. It's so easy to quickly rely on so many other things than God. Fast. It's so easy to go and to start living out of pride, thinking I can control my life. I can figure it out my own. And then you're disrupted when we have to go one, two, three meals, and you realize you're so angry because you're just hangry. And you realize that, wow, my day can be so easily disrupted. Fasting, the first thing it does is start aligning ourselves with God's heart. And it's not just for us. There's, it's incredible benefits. It's incredibly, uh, uh, it aligns us with God. But when we start aligning ourselves with God, we start realizing who, what's God's heart about? What's the attitude of Christ? Putting others up. Jesus sacrificed, surrendered his deity as the son of God to become the son of man took the lowest position available as a sacrificial offering for every single one of us. He elevated the needs of other peoples before his own. And so fasting does do all of the things that we talked about personally, yet it also lets us, aligns us with God's heart for the poor and the oppressed. It aligns our heart to grow. As you grow in humility, you start growing in compassion and you start putting a name to a face and you start seeing a need and realizing we have a responsibility to feed a need. And so he goes through this whole passage in Isaiah of saying, it's great that you're fasting, but I'm calling for compassion with action. Not just coming to the temple and not just going through religious movements, but actually accomplish something. James calls it faith and works. They must go together. There must be a response. Show me that you're saved, Philippians says, 2.13. Show me that the results of your salvation. Show me there was a change in your heart. Get out of your own lane. Get out of your own bubble. 
And so we learn that we can fast for others. James 1.27 says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. If you use that definition of genuine ministry and you look at the things that we call ministry, oftentimes they don't correlate. You know how weird that verse is? Genuine ministry is taking care of the widows and feeding the orphans? That's like, what percentage of our life in church does that? Yet fasting immediately addresses this. Do not let yourself be corrupted by the world. Fasting pulls the pride out of you and shows you you have pride. Fasting pulls the, the, the angry spirit and the anger and the selfishness out of you and says you have these things to deal with and aligns you with God. And it grows humility in your life. And out of humility comes the compassion for others. So that we can stand in solidarity with people suffering, people oppressed, and people in need. Scott McKnight says, Fasting, if it is genuine, brings us into communal spirituality because it is a response to the lack of justice in the community. this is the altar call this week. The altar call this week is a response that can't be measured in how many people come to the altar. It's not a response we can measure as a church. It's only a response that you individually have to hear the call and answer it. St. Augustine says this, fasting chastens yourself. It does not refresh others. Your distress will profit you if you afford comfort to others. How many poor can be filled by the breakfast we have this day given up? How many poor can be filled by the breakfast this day we have given up? And so a very easy practice as we begin and continue in our practice of fasting is if you take the days, take 30 days times your monthly budget that you give to food, divide that so every day you're spending this much on food, the days that you fast, allocate those to supporting somebody, filling a need in your community. The bread, they literally used to just gather the bread, and then they would go and hand it out to the poor. And so as me and my family are moving into this, we just started thinking, you know, this is, a new, this is new for us. This is, this is new practice, realizing God's opening eyes saying, it's not just about you. There's needs in your community. How are you going to fill them? And so we started looking at this as what could we do with the fasting that we do and the ways we implement our house, what, what does that look like? And so we came up with just a few ideas for you guys. And if you visit our website, you'll see a couple of areas. If you're trying to look and you want to implement this in your life, then you're not immediately being, you see a need that you can fulfill. The, there might be a few ideas, that you, organizations you can give to that are built around the idea of supporting those in need. And there's a couple there for you to look at. The one that I would say locally is, because you know what I did when I started doing this? I put, typed in homeless ministry, Huntley, Illinois. And nothing came up. Nothing came up. The, the nearest things was Elgin and Rockford and other places, but nothing really came up. And so this is why I wanted to say to our churches, if you go back to our vision and mission statement, we talked about becoming pushing into our local community. We talked about spreading the hope of Jesus 
and becoming a servant to the local community. And this is, I don't have, here's the 10-step plan to end blah, blah, blah in Huntley, Illinois. We are on the path, step one, of what are the needs of our community. And part of that is a personal challenge, personal responsibility to identify the needs in our personal communities. Seeing the neighbors or seeing the people around us, seeing the people in your networks or your school district, seeing the people at work, identifying the people that are directly in your community, which will directly affect the community that touches Church on the Rock. Identifying the needs. And the first place that starts with is just knowing people. Bring them in, raise them up, and send them out. How does that start? It comes with just starting to know people. As we begin to know people, again, Dallas Weird says, community starts with taking responsibility for another person. As soon as my son or daughter were born, I immediately took responsibility for them. You, the first time I had the, the, our first kid, we thought, like, oh, the, the big, like, moment was the baby, like, just crying for the first time and every. No, the big moment was when you're exhausted after 24 hours or 36 hours and surgeries and all this stuff, and they hand you a baby to take care of. Like, what am I supposed to do with this thing? It's crying. Like, somebody, where's the nurse or whatever? Like, somebody come. No, that's when it starts. Immediately, as soon as that baby's born, you have a responsibility to cover all the needs of that baby. And you don't sleep because you're like, is it choking? Can you hear it? Is it not crying? Should it be crying? It won't stop crying? Is it Like, you don't know what to do. And it's a big learning curve. But as our kids have gotten older, and as we begin to know them more and more, and we know the things that they individually struggle with, we've been able to help them in the areas that they need help. We've been able to adapt to the things that they need. And the same thing will happen as we start fasting and opening our eyes to our community. That God will start identifying, I really believe that God will start identifying the needs that we can accomplish in our community. Part of it is doing the things like the police outreach and the Rockford outreach. But our heart for this church is to move into the the very local community of Huntley, Illinois. And so I'm asking you and our church, how do we do that? by fasting corporately, by taking responsibility for the people around us, by fulfilling the needs that we can. And eventually out of that prayer and out of that fasting, I believe the next steps will become more clear as we begin to know our neighbors, as we begin to know the people that we call our local community. Amen.